Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company. Welcome to Bakersfield Observed with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the Bakersfield Observed podcast, recorded right here at American General Media Offices off California Avenue and Highway 99 right here in Bakersfield. This podcast airs weekly, and it complements the work of my Bakersfield Observed blog. You can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you access your podcast. You can also get it on kernradio.com. The idea behind this podcast is simple. We simply want to provide a forum for the Bakersfield community to gather to discuss the issues that confront all of us. And of course, it would never be able to do this without the support, the support from our sponsors. That would be include Centric Health, King Door, and Premier Lighting. Today, we have a special guest. We're going to be talking to Samuel Van Kopp. He's a young man who grew up in Bakersfield, graduated from West Point, served in Afghanistan where he was severely wounded back in September of 2012. He has since recovered, later worked for Kev- Congressman Kevin McCarthy. He has since earned his law degree from Georgetown and is working as a lawyer in our nation's capital. Samuel Van Kopp, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Richard. Uh, thank you for having me at this important time. It's uh, it, Thank you, Sam. I, I neglected to mention Sam was a guest on my radio show several times we had him uh on, on a few times it's great to have you back my my friend i uh, your name popped up again sam because you wrote a very very compelling essay a community voices submission in the bakersfield california and the headline was the agony in afghanistan and that's why i asked you to come on i want to thank you for that i'd like to take this opportunity if you don't mind sam to read the first paragraph the opening paragraph of your essay which i think accurately sets the tone here you write this like any veteran of the afghan war i watched the news last week with an agony i scarcely thought possible it is a hideous and deep despair familiar in form if not intensity because of the many disasters that have accompanied these last eight years of American withdrawal. Many veterans carried those disappointments personally as as when the Taliban seized a town they had once patrolled or a Taliban commander responsible for the deaths of their comrades was released from prison. These poisons met, metabolized slowly like doses of arsenic taken against the day when the cup must be drunk to the dredges. Now that day has come, and our cup runneth over. Sam Van Kopp, what made you put pen to paper to write this essay? Well, I think it's a very important time in the general public conversation around Afghanistan. And it's a time, I think, where you need just normal, regular people to talk about their thoughts on the issue, because there's sort of a consensus congealing about the Afghan war, what it meant for the U.S., 
and what war in general should mean for the U.S. And I think I had so many conversations with other veterans that I went to West Point with or that I knew in the Army. This was sort of a top of mind for everyone. And I was I was really grateful that the Bakersfield, California, would give me a chance to put that voice out there. I think there's been more conversation about Afghanistan these last two weeks than there's been, I think, probably since 2014, the latest, mm-hmm. you know, possibly since the war began. So, You served and you were injured in 2012. Uh, you, were, you were 24 years old at the time, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and you're 33, 34 now? Yep, 33 now, yes. Talk to me a little bit about how the experience of serving in Afghanistan, particularly now with the events unfolding, but with your injury and your wounding and your recovery, we've, we've, we've spanned a decade here. D- did the war ever leave you? And w- it, when you looked at the events of where we are now, was this a day you saw coming? I think everyone expected the Afghan government to fall eventually, but I can't claim to have predicted that it would fall so fast. Um, it, it is something I think not uncommon. I think every veteran maintains some memories of their time there and a connection to those they were there with. And so in that sense, yes, I think you know, Afghanistan has never been far from me. But it's also true that one of the great things about serving in the military in a democracy is that it's something you do for most people anyway for a few years, and then you move on with your life. And so, you know, I've also tried to do that. I you know, don't claim to have any you know, particular special expertise uh, on the nation or the war. It's just one veteran's opinion um, from that context. Were you, uh, Sam, were you disappointed in the way that this has ended? Is it, is it natural uh, uh, to think that, uh, somebody like you who gave so much and, and certainly some people gave it all uh, that people would, would, would be disappointed that we didn't perhaps win in a conventional sense. I, I think so. I, mean, I think it is, I think it is very disappointing. I, I'm disappointed though, more from the sort of the, the American reaction. I think the, the public conversation around uh, this defeat than I am about the defeat itself. I think, it's sort of it's very hard to hear uh, the amount of concern that I know was, was sort of always there in the American public about what would happen to the Afghans who would be left behind for American withdrawal. But what's so hard to take is that that conversation never emerged before now. It seems that this is something the U.S. is very good at doing. We regret something mm-hmm. after it's happened, but we're not willing to pay up front to prevent it from happening in the first place. And so in that sense, it is very painful. Uh, it is true that like, over the last few years, as withdrawal has happened, some of those, those things I mentioned happened to me, right? I mean, in the sense that the, the man who uh, engineered the suicide bomb attack on our patrol was released in 2014, I believe. I didn't know that. Um, didn't uh, yes. Know. Uh, there's even a BBC story um, interviewing, interviewing him. And I, I, don't, I don't have actually any personal animus. Um, we, you know, both, both sides were fighting for something they believed in. Um, I think so. So in a sense, yes, there, there is that that deep disappointment that comes with it. Um, but I think that's something that's it's common to any veteran or, or anyone who spent time in the country. I didn't realize that the person who engineered the attack had been released. You lost two uh, platoon members in that that attack. Uh, I mean, it, certainly there's got to be some side of you who who would 
wish horrible things would happen to this person. Truly not. I I know that's a common perspective, but the way I saw it, um, I was there in Afghanistan because I believe strongly in in nation building and believe strongly in in the opportunity to provide some sort of relief to the people of Afghanistan. And the fellow on the other side of the wire felt very strongly about Sharia, felt very strongly about uh, the West being what he thought to be an evil entity. And so it, I didn't hold it personally, um, him trying to kill us or us trying to kill him. Um, and it wasn't, of course, the first time that folks that we arrested were released uh, right. uh, on three different occasions. You know, we, we brought people in with you know, homemade explosive on their hands. Um, and sometimes the political considerations in, Afga- in Kabul were such that those people would be released, too. So it's, it's just part of the counterinsurgency process. Yeah, it's uh, watching the events un, uh, unfold when you and I were preparing for this. I told you it's just heartbreaking to watch, and I think most Americans f- feel feel that these these scenes at the airport are just so gripping and so horrific in a way. Can you can you take me back to when you were there and how what role these Afghan civilians, the people who who we have a responsibility to help get out the people who cooperated with us what they meant to you and how 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 you see our responsibility to them i think the united states has a great responsibility not only to the folks who directly help the united states there's been a lot of conversation about interpreters and there are some twenty thousand or so interpreters who who work for the united states and to give you an idea when we were working with these interpreters they couldn't use their real name right even their their real name would be something that might be compromised. It would get back to the Taliban. They would end up in, in retribution against their family. So they all work with pseudonyms. Um, and so those are people who, and we mm. went into firefights with these folks. They mm. were right next to us. They didn't even have weapons, right? Mm. But they could have died just like the rest of us. I think that's why there's been such a strong focus on that amongst veterans. Um, and I, I'm in contact with our interpreter. He did get a visa a few weeks ago, but he didn't get out of Kabul, as we know. So He's still there. It's, it's personal. Yeah, yeah, I think, for a lot of veterans. But the fact is, like, interpreters are just the tip of the iceberg, right? There are thousands of people who work for Western NGOs um, providing security or providing expertise. There are thousands of people uh, who work for the Afghan national government whose lives were, mm-hmm. were jeopardized by that action, too. Uh, to give you just one example, in 2012 in Logar, where we were, there was a Kandak commander in our area whose wife and children had been kidnapped and executed by the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a Kandak commander, he's just a colonel. Like, he's nobody special. Mm-hmm. But the idea that retribution could be brought to your family was something that the Afghans knew about when they, when they worked and when they put their faith in this government that was backed by the United States. So it seems to me that at the very, very least, the U.S. should do everything it can to help everyone who can escape the Taliban if they manage to get out. Is, there, is that possible? There's a, there's a lively debate now about the deadline, this, the, the August 31 deadline that the president has said we'll be out by and the Taliban wants us out by. Uh, there's some concern about will we truly be able to get everybody out? Some people can't even get to the airport or perhaps they're outside of Kabul and can't get to Kabul, you know. Are we going to be leaving people behind there? Absolutely. Uh, I think I don't. I haven't seen anyone uh, think otherwise or say otherwise. 
but the idea, I think, that we would end the airlift you know, before we absolutely had to is, is really, it's unforgivable. Um, so long as that perimeter holds, so long as this agreement holds, I feel like we should help everyone we can. Um, you know, the New York Times this morning uh, had an estimate of 300,000 Afghan nationals who are in danger of being targeted because of their service for the state of the United States. Obviously, you're not going to get 300,000 people out. Right. Um, but everyone who can get out, I think, I think the very least the U.S. owes them is an opportunity for refuge. Right. What do you make of uh, Sam? What, what do you make of the, the American public's reaction to this? Not everybody is thrilled about a, a new wave of refugees, no matter where they're from, and it, it begs the question about the responsibility that our nation or any nation has when it goes in and engages in nation building, so to speak. We've been there 20 years. To me, that's an entire generation. You have an entire generation of Afghan young people who weren't alive during the last time the Taliban was there, young ladies who have bought into the promise that they can be something, they can, they can get their education, they can play on a soccer team or be a scientist or whatever. These, these are young adults who don't, who, who were never experienced the Taliban, and yet we're leaving them to that. What is it that you would tell the American people about our responsibility when we have been in a country for two decades and now we're leaving? I think it, at any time where the United States gives its word, to the population of a country that it's trying to help. Now, that has significant consequences. I mean, not just moral consequences, never mind the fact that, you know, in 2004, I believe it was, President Bush signed a treaty of you know, enduring friendship between the United States and, and Afghanistan that promised American support. I mean, never mind that, you know, generations of generals told Afghans, you know, to their face, right, that we would be there mm. uh, for support. Uh, even beyond that fact, I think the United States suffers a huge blow when, in the international community when we are seen to so obviously break our promises uh, in this regard. And it doesn't take, I think, an expert to recognize that America's foreign policy around the world is based on these promises. Mm. You know, we have guarantees to Taiwan, for example, that the United States would come to its defensive attack. We've, we've guaranteed to NATO as well that we would do the same thing in the face of Russian aggression. If that word doesn't count for anything, I think it's very difficult to see how the United States gets away from the 2020s without more conflict. Hmm. And, and yet, would you, I think it's safe to say the American public was sick of the war. That you, you heard that from our president, said it's time to get out, that it was going to be Messy. He blamed part of this on the previous administration. Samuel Van Kopp is president of the United States. How would you you have handled it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Biden had very few options because in 2020, the president had signed a uh, treaty directly with the Taliban that cut out the Afghan national government entirely, required no guarantees for anything about the Afghan people, no guarantees of humanitarian assistance, no guarantees for for the rights of women and no guarantees for even the existence of the Afghan government. The only thing that was guaranteed was a, a promise the Taliban made that foreign fighters wouldn't operate from their soil. Uh, so yes, his hands were tied. I totally believe that. That treaty was set to expire in May of 2020. 
But I think the only responsible thing to do was to break that treaty, to maintain U.S. forces in the field in order to fight this this war. I, I think you're correct that the, there's public, the public is tired of this conflict. But to me, I think that is the root of the problem. I, I don't think the public appreciates you know, what it means to abandon 30 million people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the public wants to see those sorts of things happening. But it's only when it does happen that you finally see the response that you're seeing today with with folks being very concerned and very upset about these these uh, developments. You know, is 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 this our uh, your generation's Vietnam, so to speak? I mean, this happened this happened before. That was my generation's Vietnam. Uh, the scenes, the chaotic scenes at the end people being left, some got out, some didn't. Many, thousands and thousands more, I'm sure, would have willingly have left had they had the opportunity. What does this say about the consensus about U.S. foreign policy and the role we play in not so much nation building, but when we go in and make these commitments? How do you square that? Well, I think I think this is our nation's Vietnam in a sense in which you're talking about, in the sense that the fallout from this incident and the public consensus that we come to right now is going to stay with us for decades, just as the fallout from Vietnam and the public consensus about what happened in Vietnam, what went wrong, has stayed with us for decades and informed our policy. So in that sense, I think they are the same. But I think it's also important to recognize how much easier of a problem set the U.S. had in Afghanistan than in Vietnam. Uh, we, we forget because it's been so long, but in 2002, you could not find Afghan Taliban in Afghanistan, only mm. in Pakistan. Mm. You had this the country wrote its own constitution, had free elections for the first time, elections that were barred by corruption, of course, but they occurred. You know, there was a civil society and the Afghan population between 2000 and today roughly doubled. The quality of life improved dramatically as well. So we had a situation, we, we weren't fighting regular army troops either, unlike in Vietnam, where it was a combination of both insurgents and regular troops. So there are so many differences between the war, but the important thing is the similarity, I think, because it will, I think, affect what wars the United States decides to get into in the future and how long we intend to help those that we promised to do. Where did we go wrong, Sam? I mean, if it, if at one time uh, back eighteen years ago, nineteen years ago, uh, we had them on the run, so to speak, and you could only find Taliban in, in Pakistan, where, where did we go? What happened? I, I think the consensus is that the United States prioritized counterterrorism over nation building. Yeah. I, I know it looks in retrospect like the United States tried very hard from the beginning to build a nation in Afghanistan, but the, the numbers don't buy that out. For example, in 2001, the U.S. spent around $4.5 billion on the invasion itself. But in 2002, the president's budget only allocated $151 million mm-hmm. to rebuild the whole country mm-hmm. for 2002, that was. I mean, that's not even not even 10%. Uh, and the administration through Donald Rumsfeld was very clear that nation building wasn't going to be the American priority. Um, even at the end of the war today, like the total amount of assistance given by the United States to all of Afghanistan, to include the Afghan army and the Afghan public, is around $144 billion. Mm. At the same time, the U.S. spent around 
$800 billion on U.S. military operations in Afghanistan, mm. right? So we really, we got the war we paid for. We didn't try to build a civil society. We, we, we prioritized the destruction uh, of al-Qaeda. And you could see this on the ground in 2012. You could see the effects of this, right? You, you had the only presence in, of, of federal government in Afghanistan, in, in Logar, and I think in, in any other village, if you talk to any veteran, was Afghan troops. You know, you, it was very difficult to find actual civil society. Um, there was a lot of reconstruction, a lot of building that you could point to with American funds. But it was very hard to find a public behind that infrastructure. Hmm. Uh, I, I, so I think that was a, a catastrophic failure. And it's, I think it's completely understandable. I think we get here, actually, because of the Vietnam consensus. Like Rumsfeld, not an unintelligent man, the administration wanted to avoid this conflict because they wanted to avoid casualties. And I think the lesson that you have to pull from the Afghan war then is that you can't try to just hit and run. You can't you know, destroy a country and leave it, if you don't plan for the long term from the beginning, you're going to be paying more at the end. And that's something that I think we have a difficult time doing as Americans. Did it surprise the, the, the whole collapse of uh, the, uh, the security forces there at the end? And I, I think the president said that, yeah, the... Uh, the National Army numbered up around 350,000. I mean, what happened there? I mean, you fought alongside those people. Was was there simply not the will, or or was there a sense of that it was inevitable that this was going to happen? I mean, we spent 20 years. People are upset about, you know, all the equipment we lost. What, what happened militarily at the end? I think if you— Think of that. If you think about this problem on the, the level of an individual soldier, I think it's a lot easier to understand. And, and in answer to your question, like in 2012, we worked with good Afghan units and we worked with terrible Afghan units. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to forget that you know, 60,000 Afghan soldiers over 20 years ended, died fighting the Taliban, mm -hmm. and they did it with resources that were far inferior to the United States. It took a lot of courage. For folks to do that knowing that their families were at risk and when you fast forward to 2020 you know the united states declared its intent to withdraw and its timeline for withdrawal in 2013 so there's been seven years of withdrawal right. on top of that uh, there's this separate peace sign with the taliban and you've had steadily increasing taliban gains i i to me i think it's very hard to think that any individual soldier would decide to stay and fight when it was so evident that the war was losing and losing and lost. Yeah, right. Um, so I think if you think about it in that context, it's a different story. And it's important to note, there are already news stories about Afghan forces that stayed in fight, the Afghan commandos particularly, hmm. um, in, in southern Afghanistan. So there are pockets that tried, but I think it's, it's, a, bit, uh, it's a bit wrong of us in the United States to project onto the Afghan people and say, well, why didn't you fight? When, after all, so few Americans fought either. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, Sam, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the chaos at the airport and why couldn't have the administration done this better? Why weren't they planning better? How can you get out, you know, 100,000 people in the matter of, 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 of a week and a half? You know, you know the lay of the land on the ground. You know the country. You know 
the population centers, you know, the logistical obstacles to that kind of an airlift. Is there a way that you could have done it in a more orderly fashion to get more people out, not not with a gun to your head, so to speak? I, I'm really I'm not an expert in, in logistics and logistics. I'm sorry, and I don't mm-hmm. claim to have the answer um, to the question about how you know, precisely you could have stacked the flights to maximize the number of people getting out. But I think when we're talking about, you know, what is the American public's takeaway from that collapse and from that failure, I think the consensus is and the message you know, has to be that you, if you're going to simply withdraw all support, it, it cannot be a clean exit and you are necessarily going to leave people behind. Um, and the failure, I think, to have a contingency so that you could maximize the number of folks who did get out is is something that I think reflects very poorly on every American, you know, as being part of this government and as this being part of American policy now. Yeah. Yeah. How would you grade the president, president Biden on this? What kind of grade would you give him on this? Well, I I think, I think it would have been superhuman to reverse American policy in in three months in four months on the job before May of, of 2021. So, in that sense, I don't think he's personally entirely responsible for this uh, for this unfortunate crisis. Um, but I, I do hope that he reverses his opinion um, and his his deadline of August 31st uh, for the airlift. Um, I think if you were to assign grades to presidents, I, I think the, the mass of the blame has to fall on on George W. Bush for the way in which he conducted the war in the early years as so many of the problems with, with government corruption, uh, with the nepotism that we could see on the ground in 2012, with the, the lack of a plan that was so evident, mm-hmm. can be traced to his administration. But it's also true, I think, that you know every president following um, President Bush didn't have the resources, they didn't devote the resources to this issue that they should have. So in that sense, everyone fails a bit. Um, yeah. Uh, Sam, let's, let's you, you're in your thirties. You're still a young man. You have a lot, a lot of, a lot of life left here. Uh, one day you're not going to be a young man and you're going to be, uh, explaining your role and, and in Afghanistan serving your country. And I'm curious about what you think that narrative of what are we going to be telling our children and our grandchildren about this war? What are we going to be saying about what went wrong and maybe what what we should have done? Once again, it parallels to Vietnam here because there's different narratives about there. And we're finally reaching a narrative that includes uh, valor and, 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 and commitment after a long time when, when Vietnam vets were not welcomed back properly. What will our narrative be for the Afghan war? I think it's important that that narrative be accurate. Uh, so about the, the Vietnam narrative war. I, so growing up, I mean, I remember being told by adults, not my parents, but by other parents, right? That the Afghan war wasn't a loss. It was a tie, right? The United States won on the battleground, but lost in the public. And I think that's you mean Vietnam. wrong. Vietnam. Viet, I'm sorry. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, I mean, that's, that's a lie. There's some truth to it, but it's a lie. When you think about the trauma that that, that lie demonstrates. I mean, there are some truths 
that are so hard to take. You don't just lie to yourself, you lie to children. And, and that's what we have to avoid with this consensus. I think the reality here uh, about Afghanistan, it was a failure of public will. You know, the public was not willing to devote the personnel uh, to suffer the casualties for a long-term intervention. And we should contrast this with the American public's will to do just this sort of thing in different conflicts. I mean, if you think about South Korea, for example, the United States had 350,000 troops there at, at its peak in 1953, and, and more than 50,000 for the remainder of the Cold War. Even during the Afghan War, there were more troops in South Korea and Germany, for that matter, uh, than there were in Afghanistan for all but six years of the conflict. So I, I think the narrative has to be that America decided this wasn't important to them anymore. And I think if you're going to tell your children something about this, I think the message has to be that the United States has to be on the same page before it puts its prestige and it puts people's lives in the line for an issue that they may not care about in 10 years. Oh, but Sam, I mean, is, is that possible? I mean, we... we... That this country seems uh, politically and otherwise, we have such a short attention span, and we get bored easily. And you say we have to be on the same page for maybe a lo longer conflict. I'm of the opinion I don't know if this country has the appetite for a foreign intervention of of this type again. What say you? Oh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right about the difficulty of getting the public on the same page. But, of course, the beauty of our system is that we have a process for doing this. You know, it used to be before the United States went to war, you had to have a declaration of war from Congress. You have the American people's signature on a line of paper through their representatives saying that they will send troops to fight this war for this mission. And that is as close to getting on the same page as you can in a democracy. And I think it's telling that we haven't done that since World War II. Mm. Um, and that is the that is the process by which we should be in these we, we should be entering into these conflicts. Um, and if there's not a political will to do that, then I think the United States should refrain from making those promises that it cannot keep. Um, and that's why I think this conversation is so important right now, because we have outstanding promises to countries around the world. Right. And if if it's if we're not going to follow through on those promises, we need to make that very clear up front so that we don't put other millions of lives at risk because they were depending on a promise from America that didn't follow through. And, and what, what's the danger in that in terms of, you mentioned Taiwan earlier, that we have a lot of promises out to allies across the world that we will stand, I mean, whether it's Japan or Taiwan or whoever, that you know, these, these mutual aid and mutual protection packs and that type of thing. If you're sitting in Taiwan and you're watching this unfold, what are you thinking? And how dangerous is that for us? I, I think that's a huge danger. I, I don't understand how the administration could have come to this position without having figured that out or at least made some policy or statement about that. I don't mean just this administration. I mean the prior administrations, too. I mean, they're so... In my mind, in answer to your question, I think that is the answer that's going to come out of the public discourse right now. As people talk about Afghanistan, as they talk about nation building or counterterrorism, as they talk about American alliances, you know, there's going to be a consensus about whether or not we are going to defend 
these other countries. And I think it's very important that we do, but that conversation has to happen now or else we're not going to be in a position where our policy will reflect that. Do you think we will have that conversation? I think so. I think it's already happening. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, with the, with the amount of coverage that Afghanistan's gotten the last couple of weeks alone, um, with the uh, the number of speeches the president has made in the last few weeks alone, all, none of which were planned or scheduled, right? This is an issue that is front and center. And so that's why I hope if people have have feelings about this, that they have opinions, that they make them known, you know, that they write their congressman or their newspaper and try to get the word out, because this is our chance, right? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, because what you're talking about is really a conversation about war and the concept of war and commitment and sending young men and women in harm harm's way. You had mentioned something to me in a text earlier about the gamification of war. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean by that, and this is not a new idea, right? But you can see this in the way in which we, we use phrases related to war or conflict in everyday life and in political life, right? I mean, you can't find a politician who won't say, you know, I'm going to fight for you, right? Mm-hmm. I'll never surrender, right? I'm going to crush we're going to get victory, total, you know, total war sort of thing. In terms of policy, too, we also use the phraseology of war, right? We declare war on poverty, a war on drugs, or there's a campaign to fight climate change or a campaign mm. for, for this or that issue. Mm. And what happens when that happens is that you start to think about war, I think, similar to the way you think about other things in life. And the more that war becomes just another aspect of policy, you know, the more that that you consider it like you would any other aspect of policy that has a clear timeline that is trying to achieve clear objectives that never change from start to finish. And like a game, you either win or you lose. War is, is fundamentally different you know, in a couple of different ways that are very important. I mean, first off, countries don't go to war on a plan, right? At least in the, in the modern context, you fight a war because you have to fight or you feel like you have no other option but to fight. You don't start a war in the way that you would start a political campaign uh, to make an issue, you know, to win an election, et cetera. The other major difference between war and any other part of policy is that it never ends up being about what it is in the beginning, right? So the war on poverty from day one to the last, from the first day to the last, right, is about reducing poverty. But wars always change in the course of the fighting. If you think about the American Civil War, for example, I mean, it starts literally, right, with a dispute over federal property in Charleston. But with the Emancipation Proclamation, it becomes about emancipation, so much more than that. And so you can't, the American people love to, to call things like that, call that progression mission creep. And it's one of the things that make people feel tired about a forever war. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not mission creep if, if you're doing a positive objective, if you're trying to do something that's both moral and in America's interest, it's the sort of thing you should be fighting for. Hmm. And if we look at American failure, it tends to be in these after-the-war periods. Like, for example, again, the Civil War is with Reconstruction. You know, it, it's, it's the process of losing the peace after you have won the war. And I hmm. think that is indicative of that process, whereby we, we think of this the way that we think about other things. We don't treat it as a different entity that it is. That's interesting that you t- talk about mission creep, because there are those who, who would disagree with you, who would say, we failed because we should have left after we took out 
the Taliban, or we should have left after we took out Osama bin Laden. Uh, oh, absolutely. Al-Qaeda. So and, do you think we should have left because the mission creep led to serious nation building, but you said if that's morally right, then we shouldn't apologize for it. I, 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 yes, absolutely. So I, first of all, yes, you're absolutely correct, I think. It's totally legitimate to have the perspective that the United States should have you know, hit and run, should have invaded, killed people, and left. If, if all you care about is American security interests, that is the solution that should have happened. And the president, to his credit, has had that position from the beginning. But I think that's the wrong position, both morally and in terms of America's long-term strategic interests. If you think about our greatest allies today in the world, like the, the countries that we are depending on uh, to protect the United States' interests against China, Russia, and all the authoritarian enemies, they are our enemies from previous wars, right? It's yeah, Japan, right. It's, it's Germany, it's mm. the countries that we decided to build, it's, it's South Korea, it's the support we gave to Taiwan, right? I mean, our long-term interest is, is served by trying to help our neighbors and our friends, our democratic allies. And the moral element has a political element to it too, and this is the reason I was saying before that we have to think through these things and decide to invest up front rather than pay at the end. Because I think in both Afghanistan and Iraq, they were begun by an administration that didn't want to do nation building. Mm. But they found, as the president has said lately, that they could not withdraw without that damage, without that pain. There was never a good time to leave. Yeah. And that's because as a democratic country, as a moral country, you can't just hit and run, right? right. You, you, you incur so much damage. Uh, to the country. And it, it is so indefensible that I think when it comes to counterinsurgency operations, our preference, whenever it's possible, should be to do some sort of nation building exercise. Hmm. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, is war about uh, protecting our interest or the interests of our allies, each or both? Or how do we determine when to send people like you and your platoon members abroad? What's the criteria? And this, I think, is, is part of the critical question of this conversation, because there's a strain, you know, in politics. It goes straight back to the 19th century. Right? England famously had no permanent allies, only permanent interests. So there's, there's and that that philosophy, I think, is reflected in, in the administration's current position and in the Trump administration's position that it's our interest that matters, not our allies. I would argue that the public has to come to the other conclusion that a foreign policy that's based on keeping your promises, keeping your treaties, and defending democracy against the forces that would try to overthrow it is both the only moral position, but I think it's more also, and perhaps more importantly, it's also the safest position for America's long-term interests. Um, it's, I think, always better to fight small wars, even if they're constant, than to have to fight large wars with a you know, with the survival of your country is at risk. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, my follow-up question was going to be, should war be about short-term objectives or long-term interests? It sounds like you've, you've answered that. You said it's better to fight a series of small wars than these 20-year campaigns? Right. And, and the, the short versus long-term interest is something that, that arises, I think, every time that intervention is considered. And, you know, since at least the 70s, the United States has had the position, the realpolitik position, uh, that we should focus on short-term objectives and avoid long-term costs. 
But for the reasons we've discussed today, I think I think the public has to come to the consensus that it's better to do those long-term investments um, than it is to, to have to fight large wars uh, once we've already lost our allies and, mm. and once the chips are really down. Right. You had another line in the essay, by the way. I thought your essay was just terrific. And I would urge anybody to go to the Bakersfield, Californian archives. It's probably still up online or Google uh, Sam's name with the Californian. It'll come up. But one of your lines was, in essence, America forgot why it fights not to win cheaply for winning's sake, but to struggle for a better world. Is that a consensus held the idea that you're fighting for a better world is that a consensus held by a lot of people in the military or most of the people in the military well i'd say in my platoon it was mixed it was about 50 50 and I, I won't i won't speak for them um but it's one of the things that has really interested me and i've uh, you know been writing a book on this subject just following our platoon through the deployment because you know you had folks who fought there and who were injured there and who died there, who had no interest in, in building Afghanistan. And I think their service is, is just as valuable, if not more so, because they chose to fight anyway. Mm. Um, about half my platoon, I think, did believe in, in some idea about nation building being in America's long-term interest. But you're absolutely right. It's not, a, it's not a common position. In fact, it's the antithesis of it which is one of the reasons why I think this moment in our history is so important because it's, it's an opportunity to shift the conversation um, toward where I think we should be. Mm, absolutely. Could you share a little bit? You mentioned that you're writing a book. What are you writing a book about? Oh, the, the, so the actual course of the deployment, it's, it's written, I'm looking for a publisher. And okay. it, it follows basically that the nuts and bolts of counterinsurgency operations um, in 2012, as we knew it in Logar. And it, it it follows, for example, what happens when you hit an ID. You know what happens when the Afghan union you're with is just uh, is, is targeting Afghan civilians rather than is targeting the Taliban. I mean, what does it mean logistically to move 500 people from Germany, where we're stationed, to to Afghanistan? And so all the issues that come with that, trying to integrate with NATO allies, um, was it just a terrible, terrible problem as well? It's it's it really bothers me today that uh, some European nations, specifically Germany, is being so vocal in its criticism of American withdrawal when the NATO allies were so absent from the conflict itself, mm. even after 50 years where the United States protected them during the Cold War. Mm. Um, but we were next to a, a, a platoon of tank, uh, uh, Czech tankers, for example, who were assigned to cavalry positions who never left uh, the base. They wouldn't even man the towers. They weren't allowed to do that. So they worked out for nine months and then went home. I mean, it's it, the amount of there are so many things about the Afghan war that are wrong, uh, that, that sort of hurt. Right. And to be able to lay all this out just in the perspective of a single platoon, a single platoon's uh, you know, observation, I think, is, is helpful. In a way, there are some things that are only captured by anecdote. And, and that's what this is, is trying to communicate. Well, I hope you got get, get it published. I'm sure you will, and I hope you'll rejoin us on, on this broadcast. I remember talking to you a few years ago, and you you had, I'm not sure if you were fully out of the military at that point. You were transitioning, but you were reluctant to talk about some of the things you just mentioned now about the how units on the ground 
some of the, I guess it was orders or, or uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, yeah. Sam? The Yeah, I think you're, you're looking at theater directives, yeah. and rules of engagement. Rules of engagement, yes. right. right. And, I, I mean, I think that is, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, you, you, you were very frustrated about that and, and talking about there were ghost units. I remember you telling me about we would... You know, we, we, we would you, you were supposed to meet like an Afghan unit that was really in name only because it had been established so somebody could uh, use the money that was, was, you know, siphon off the money to this ghost unit. And there's so many so many levels of, of uh, corruption. But you were you were quite frustrated with the rules of engagement. Yes. And I, I think many veterans are. Um, it's a good thing about our system that active duty soldiers can't talk about their opinions. Um, so I had to respect that. Um, but it, I think if you talk to any veterans, then it's another reason why it's important for just regular street people to talk about these sorts of things. Cause it's, it's your only, it's our only opportunity as a country to see what this actually looks like on the ground. Um, and it's an imperfect picture. It's a combination of millions of different voices. Uh, but it's, it's the best chance we got. So, Yes, uh, there are elements of the Afghan war that are incredibly frustrating. Many of those were done in order to reduce harm uh, to American service members. So there are rules, for example, even very foolish rules, like you can't exceed the speed limit. Um, Not that Afghanistan really had speed limits, but that was a rule. Um, You know, you you couldn't do operations at night, um, even though America's night vision capability is amazing and the Taliban's is zero. You know, and why was that? What what, what was the reason behind that? Well, the Karzai administration at that time had argued that night operations and night raids destabilized uh, his authority because it it, uh, was very unpopular by Afghan troops or Afghan Afghan people. And, And look, that's fine. You have to defer to the Afghan government in that sense. But I think it was also a way to just prevent U.S. troops from doing operations. But we had another rule, for example, that we couldn't conduct operations at all unless we were a partner with Afghan units. And that's where the ghost conversation, I think, came up with, because there simply weren't as many Afghan units in our theater as there were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So it ended up, you know, we we had some absurd situations where we'd have to go around and try to find some Afghan policemen that we could work with for a few minutes so that our mission was joint mission. Right. So. And And they didn't exist. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right. And and the reason I mention these things is I think they are also a consequence of the public consensus about what war is for and what should and shouldn't be risk. Right? We will wanted to avoid casualties at all costs, and that is a really good thing to do. But if avoiding casualties is more important than accomplishing the mission, then you won't achieve whatever the mission was about. So I, I don't blame the generals who made these rules. I don't blame the politicians who, who, you know, had these positions. Yeah, I really, I think it's the public's responsibility to make it clear, you know, what they will and won't tolerate and what is and isn't important to them. Yeah, excellent. Sam, we've got to wrap it up here. I want to thank you for joining us. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you, how is your health? Is it, I know you had some some traumatic brain injury after, your, after the, uh, the wounding. How are you doing? I'm I'm very well, thank you. I'll I'll have migraines and mental fatigue the rest of my life, but I should be dead, um, and that is amazing uh, that I'm that I'm not. I owe the people of Walter Reed. Uh, the doctors there are incredible, and I was just also 
impossibly fortunate that the shrapnel in my brain stopped moving before it got to my frontal lobe. So mm. I'm, I'm very lucky. And, uh, and that's where I am. Well, excellent. Uh, let's wrap this up. And any parting advice that you might have for the American public as we, as we turn on the TV at night and look at these incredible scenes coming out of the airport, knowing what we've been through, what the country has been through for 20 years and trying to wrap our arms around this. What do you have any advice for us? Just engage, you know, whatever your opinion is, just get it out there and, and don't just, you know, scream into the void. Uh, you know, talk to people who, who believe the same things that you do. I, I would just encourage folks to try to, to get their voice out, to talk to people who don't agree with you, um, I, to come to some sort of understanding because like any sort of trauma, this is not going to get better just by being upset about it or just by sitting on it. Uh, we, we have to live this. Um, and so however you do that, uh, I, I urge you to do it. Very good. Samuel Van Kopp, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You are now a working lawyer in our nation's capital. Just what we need, another lawyer, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Thank well, you. I hope that if you you come back into town to see your folks, you'll drop by the studio sometime. Absolutely, sir. I appreciate it. And I, I'm very much pressed to pull this together and put together a good uh, podcast for the, for the community. Very good. Thank you, Sam. Samuel Van Kopp, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company.